Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Jay Allen. Jay is a former client of mine. He's an ex-field medic from the military. He's got a fascinating backstory and he's now a specialist in helping build ethical scale-ups. He runs a, a company called My True North. He'll explain why in a moment. And uh, his hashtag is hashtag at a zero. So essentially, how do you 10x your business? Well, Jay's gone off and done a shed load of research, so we don't have to, thank goodness, because uh, it sounded like an awful lot of work. But he's going to throw four questions our way, and you're going to listen to me stumble, so enjoy that. And he's going to share some of the research as to why businesses fail, why they hit a glass ceiling and they can't seem to break through, and why that then tends to mean that they stagnate and die. So without any further ado, Jay, welcome. Marcus, delighted to be back with you, and uh, thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. For those of you who don't know him, Jay, would you mind giving us 90 seconds on your uh, history up to the point where you decided to move into this business? And we'll then do another couple of minutes on that. Yes, of course, no trouble. So originally trained as a psychologist, decided that I didn't like psychology, um, re-qualified in medicines to join the British Army, Spent seven years as a field medic and then subsequently requalified into change management and worked with the Intelligence Corps. Had an accident in the second Gulf, which determined that my career was cut short. And after four or five years working at the highest levels in PLC, in change management, decided that I got sick to death of being such a small cog in a big wheel and chose to be able to own my own wheelhouse by buying an existing business. I've utilised the military skills and my change management skills to be able to scale that business over a four-year period, subsequently selling it out as a employee ownership trust. And I've done that now. I'm on my fourth iteration of doing that in business. Excellent. Okay. And what got you to set up the at a zero concept and do the research? Well, ultimately, it goes back to my first business when we tendered for a national contract to be suppliers to Woolworths back in 2008. It determined when we won the contract that I quickly needed to increase headcount by seven new employees just to be able to honour the contract. Quite a significant expense of being able to take on and train and provide the resources for seven people, begged, borrowed and stole from family, friends and everywhere else to be able to make payroll. On the premise that once we got through the first 120 days, which was on, we were on 120 day notice account with Woolworths. Once we got through that period and we'd received our first paycheck, that it was going to be swimming all the way to the bank for the next three, three or four years. Only as we know, in November 2020, 2008, for Deloitte to come in and determine that Woolworths was no longer profitable and to close the business. And with it, um, we lost £224,500 worth of invoice value and, and no cash to show for it. And you I just lost seven people I ended up having to quickly make seven redundancies and made a vow there and then that one, I needed to learn from the mistakes that we'd made by putting all of those jobs and careers at risk by the decisions of one single person, myself in that occasion. And then subsequently, once we'd done a turnaround within our own business to be able to actually prove that what we teach businesses is applicable because we had to do it for ourselves. I'd fallen out of love with the business because of the impact it had had on me, both emotionally, financially, spiritually, that once we'd done the turnaround and it was now successful and profitable again, I sold that as an EOT and exited and then spent the next four years working with two of the large 
universities on an MBA programs to study what caused Woolworths to fail and what lessons can we learn from it? Okay, so in summary, high level, when we were in the green room, you said that uh, the signs that Woolworth was going to fail were uh, visible 11 years before. So it strikes me that um, yeah, I'm obviously making a wild assumption here with the data set that you've pulled together, because I believe you've uh, got over 119,000 business surveys. Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we, spent, we spent four years studying big business failure and we did data analysis on 153 national businesses in the UK that failed. And then we utilised that data to say, so how big does a business have to get before the flaws become prevalent? And that allowed us to be able to survey over 119,000 smaller businesses to identify where the cracks first, fail, uh, first appear. Right. OK, so. Um, at what stage in a business's life cycle the seeds of the flaws start getting sown? <laughs> From before we start trading. Right. Because? Well, the first and biggest flaw is 54% of businesses that failed didn't have a business plan. Now, don't get me wrong, before we go any further, you are not going to believe, and neither is any of the read, uh, listeners, if I said that Woolworths didn't have a business plan. So the caveat is in the detail, 54% of businesses that fail don't have an up-to-date business plan, which is known throughout the business and then followed throughout, uh, followed religiously. Woolworths' business plan was 11 years old when they failed. It was the last time that they'd gone for funding because they'd made this assumption that you only need to update your plan when you need to submit it to a finance house. Hmm. Other businesses that failed had an up-to-date business plan, but it was on a needs-to-know basis and was secured by the non-exec or the exec board and wasn't shared throughout the business. And therefore, employees didn't understand the impact and implication, the things that they did and how it supported or negated a successful business or not. That speaks to something really fundamental, which salespeople absolutely have to pay attention to, which is the job to be done. If the business has a job to be done and you can define what that is, then every decision that filters down from senior leadership makes sense now. And so do their crazy decisions, the compensation scheme, the way you uh, hire, the way you fire, the way you invest, the way you train, the technology you buy, the metrics you measure are all driven by that job to be done. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Right. Okay. So keep going because there there are some really interesting data points here that I don't think salespeople and um, their leadership are paying anywhere near enough attention to because they're good leading indicators. Absolutely. The third caveat for floor one, this business plan, is where businesses um, have to replace either a leader or a senior hire, somebody in the SLT or a team leader as such, who feels the need to be able to prove themselves and therefore becomes quite a maverick and then doesn't follow the plan. And it all implodes because they've gone off rather than picking up the reins of the person that they left behind and said, well, we've just got to G back up again and catch up. They go off on a tangent somewhere and the business implodes. Okay, so that then speaks to yet another area that anyone who is considering hiring someone senior as a replacement is that you need to have a proper job description of what the real job is and what their contribution to the job to be done is. Because if they don't understand that, 
then they will go off on a tangent because they think their job is to prove themselves instead of to get the job done. Yeah, all of our research, when it comes to recruiting and creating superheroes within a business, shows that the majority of business owners fails to understand that the first 103 days from the point of appointment through their probationary period is a direct measure on the longevity of service and their loyalty throughout. And yet so many people turn around and say, well, we've, we've given them six weeks induction. If they can't hold their own now, they're, uh, they're a wet fish. Well, you, you are spending probably the price of a, a small mortgage to hire anyone halfway senior or decent. Then you're spending about 20 to 36% of that on recruitment fees on top. Then you're provisioning them. And then they are meant to carry, whatever, if it's a senior executive or um, an individual contributor, they carry that piece of the overall job to be done, the quota, the target, the PL. And if you make a mishire, not only have you got that cost, you've got the opportunity cost of what they've lost and the damage they've done out in the marketplace. And then you have to play catch up and you have to start all over again. But this time, probably a year behind because you're usually even more cautious and even more demanding of them. And then you use the same job description that you use to hire the person who didn't work out the last time. And then you blame them when you wonder, maybe a quick look in the mirror might be. Well, Marcus, there's there's another even more fundamental ethical issue here with regards to KPIs and how we set performance indicators for good staff or bad staff. And the Go simple on. fact is, while, while ever we're setting performance indicators that are outside of the parameter of what the person has the capacities to fully own and control, then we're already on a hiding for nothing as to whether the market allows them to achieve or not. We've got to be able to look further internal and say, how do we reward or recognise behaviours as opposed to outcomes? And again, what we also need to do is make sure that we're all aligned and working towards uh, coming to the same finish line at the same time. And this is where there's this huge disconnect. So tell me about the causes of failure around stovepiping and lack of alignment, because I'd be very curious on the data on that. So first of all, we've done floor one all around business plan and business planning and having a direct correlation between a clear communication of what the business is trying to achieve and how everyone, not just shareholders, but stakeholders, are contributing towards that as an outcome. Would well, you mind defining who you believe are the stakeholders? Because I think many investors and many leaders may have a different perspective, and I'd like to sort of give them an alternative. Yes, of course. So in my perception, and certainly within the methodology from Adazero, we determine a stakeholder as anyone who has a contributions towards the success of the outcome of the business. That includes every employee, it includes every customer, it includes every supplier of both first tier and potentially second tier towards the overall outcome. If a second tier supplier can have an impact on the success rate of you and your business, then they're a stakeholder. And we mustn't forget our partners. Anybody at all who's got a direct correlation to the outcome of you and your goals has to be available and capable of making a contribution or a considered contribution towards the overall outcome of what we're trying to achieve and when and why. Okay, so what type of leadership is required in order to create a healthy kind of environment 
where stakeholders are all satisfied instead of only a tiny minority? Great question, Marcus. I love I love communicating with you because you ask the quality of question that that makes people give consideration and thought. And for that, I want to be able to share a very brief story from an old chap, or older chap now, called Mick Germain, who I owe everything to from my military career. He was my first ever regimental sergeant major. And I'll never forget the day, uh, the day where I was marched into his office as a private soldier to be advised that, congratulations, you've been picked up on the promotion uh, promotions board and you're going to be awarded your first ever stripe to become a Lance Corporal in the Royal Army Medical Corps. And as he passed me my stripe, he said, congratulations, son, you've now earned the right to serve others. Lovely. And I thought, hang on a minute, I'm a Lance Corporal. It means now I can ask for a coffee as opposed to have to make them. And within four months, I'd lost my tape and I was back to being a private soldier because I hadn't adapted the mentality. (laughs) And four months later on a rugby pitch, he said, are you ready to be able to earn that strike back? And I went, I'll do anything for it, sir. He says, then demonstrate servant leadership. And from there on in, I learned the, the, the opportunity, the right, the honor it is to be able to serve the people who or within my command or in my control to enable them to become the best level of human being that they can be. I love that. It's again, totally aligned with my message. So, okay. So let's get these four painful questions out and watch me squirm. Can we dive into the second and third floor? And oh, the, of course, yeah, yeah. Purely on the premise that yeah, no, no, you're right. the, the, the value of the questions. So 54% of businesses fail because of an up-to-date, uh, failed to have an up-to-date, known and shared, followed business plan. 39% of businesses fail because they've put emphasis on system and process over people. And yeah. we've seen so many businesses, particularly during COVID and lockdown, really good, profitable businesses that have subsequently gone to the wall so quickly. Because if you are so reliant on a system and process and just getting people to follow the lead, then in actual fact, I guarantee you that there was less than 0.1 businesses that stress-tested their systems and processes against a global lockdown. If any. But what you've touched on there is, I think, fundamentally important, which is the overemphasis on finance, technology, and data, and in the pursuit of the mythical attainment of efficiency at the sacrifice of relationship and effectiveness. Amen to that. We've got to really start rethinking, because I see the pressure middle management is under. They're under pressure from above, to hit quotas. They're under pressure from below because these people need help and support, which they probably can't give them because they're overstretched. They're under pressure from their peers because the work that they do affects whether or not people can hire or keep their staff and keep their little empires. And stuck in the middle is the manager who also could be sued. So you've got all of this going on and 60% of them are now suffering from a health-threatening stress-related condition in sales, okay? Now, these are the people who, on average, will have seven to eight reports, okay? And those are the people who are going out and spending time with your most important asset, your customers. And you're creating the conditions where, in a high-stress environment where there is uncertainty, 
the brain's natural defense is to go straight to worst case scenario. Okay. That then sends a bunch of nasty hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, through the system, which creates heightened stress and uh, you know, builds problems with inflammation in the brain and the gut. Th those problems start to lurk because that starts to affect mood and temperament. Now, when you start to look at the whole system, when these people are under pressure, they start to make poor decisions. They create the conditions where people make poor decisions. And by putting their salespeople under pressure, they then create the conditions where the salespeople's frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex, switches off, which is where language, reason, and logic reside. So you're now putting the people who spend the most amount of time, theoretically, with your most important asset, your customers, and you're dumbing them down to the point where they're in a self-defense mode. You're also creating the conditions because you ask them to try and create urgency in the deal, bring deals forward to make a valuation number, to trigger the insula within the buyer's brain and trigger the emotions of contempt and disgust. This is what you are doing as best practice, people, okay? So tell me what the research says we can do instead. Oh, no, hang on. We've got level three yet. We, we have. I, I uh, I've got so many questions. Um, so in order to be able to combat level two uh, or floor two, we've got to ensure that every single interaction we have, both internally and externally, are people-centric, not just customer-centric or stakeholder-centric or shareholder-centric, but human being-centric. And we have systems and processes that have the leniency to be able to support them to be the best human beings that they can be, to empower them to be able to make the right decision, um, from a gut and an emotion and interaction and, and education and experience, as opposed to having to dumb them down and follow a script. Again, th this is one of my big frustrations. These systems, uh, Sandler, Medit, Spin, they're fantastic as a framework. But when you start turning them into constraints, they become manacles. People have to follow this system rigidly. That's not how the buyers buy. So you're automatically creating needless friction and losing business, which you've paid for because you've spent money. And bear in mind, in marketing campaigns, a 3% response rate isn't considered too bad. Well, that means 97% of all of your effort and money and time and follow-up and everything else is wasted. But not only wasted, it's offending the person that's receiving yeah. it and pushing them further and further away from you. And why would you want to have 97% of your audience talking bad against you about you that are going to influence the 3% that have might have been unfortunate enough to open the one-size-fits-all? I think in fairness, you know, people see it works. And it does work for some. And there are some people who are magnificent at it. However... Anything that you have to basically jailbreak suggests that maybe there's an easier way. I'm in a community on WhatsApp, and it's brilliant. These people are so creative, so innovative, but they're spending all of their time trying to break through the blockages that companies are putting up to prevent them from putting their spam in. Yeah. So, you know, some of them very successful, millions and millions of dollars, uh, you know, individual contributors, but most can barely afford their groceries. And unfortunately, that's just going to continue to get worse and worse and less, uh, unless the system is challenged sufficiently to be able to say, there's got to be another way. I'm hoping that we might get to the tipping point quite soon. Floor three, 
27% of businesses that are usually from the outside, unicorns growing exceptionally well. From the outside, everything looks rosy. Um, we've seen so many businesses that have catapulted through COVID and lockdown from small or regional businesses through to global businesses that subsequently will fall over one day and just disappear overnight. And it's usually where they are so externally focused that they haven't taken time to recognize that every single department within the business is also a customer and they become silos of each other. And sales stops talking to marketing and marketing stops talking to finance and finance stops talking to operations and all of a sudden HR are having a field day. Or not. <laughs> or not. Here's a thought for you, uh, Marcus. I predicted that this was going to be the outcome about 25, 30 years ago when we stopped call, calling it a personnel department yeah. and started to refer to it as a human resource. Yeah. Well, we've we dehumanized the whole thing. I mean, you, you look at the, uh, the sales process. The problem is that most of the alphas never got to read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, where he expressly says that you should not allow the mercantile class to overly dominate. And the whole private equity, venture capital, capital markets is all about a tiny proportion squeezing everybody for everything. And we are little better than a cash crop. Amen. Uh, we are the commodity. Yeah. When we realize that, that actually gives us some power. Uh, one of my um, hypotheses is that you don't have free will except in the gaps and the moments where you realize you have none. And then you can make a conscious choice. That's when you're living in the drama triangle. If you're living in the winner's triangle, then you're capable of making a rational response as long as you don't let your ego get hooked and drag you into the drama. So let's then build on um, this research. Because I, I mean, you, you, you're talking about declining numbers. So 54% didn't have a business plan. That means 46% uh, didn't have one, sorry. And 27% were looking rosy from the outside. But what about the 83% who were looking dodgy from the outside? Because I suspect there's a lot of very instructive information there because most organizations look pretty ropey when you look uh, with any form of depth in, in the lens. Yeah, absolutely. We've Our study and research is, is concentrated on if you've got any one of those flaws it's easily surmountable as soon as you've recognized it and start to pay some attention to it, that you can overcome this and it won't have a long-term impact on the business. Okay. Once you've got a second floor, if you've got either of any of those three, but any two of those three floors, it will create a glass ceiling to which you will struggle to be able to try and move across. And it will create dormancy in the business. And as a result, you'll start to lose some top talent because they get fed up of being in the same place again and again and again. And as a business tries to break through that glass ceiling, usually it determines that it goes back to breaking one of the fundamental rules to which it was based upon. It creates the silo, it adds the third, and now it's a case of when will it break as opposed to will it break. Right. Okay. Well, it's really interesting because um, my pal Stephen Harvard Davis did some research on this a while back. But what he found was that there was a 50% probability that if one of your top talent left, another top talent would leave within six months. Now, in sales, those often have a 9x or 12x or 20x delivery number compared with your C players, of which you have many more. So there's a really interesting question 
about building the B players up. And there's a big debate about whether you should play favorites and only work with your A players because 20% of 120% is better than 20% of 30%. And the uh, other piece is, do you work with that middle layer? Because often they don't really have the motivation. And if you don't have a good middle management layer, they don't have the competence to coach them and create the conditions for those people to thrive. So how do we create that? So I categorize, um, like you've done A players, B players and the likes, I categorize everybody within a business, A's, B's, C's and D's. And yet they're probably not the same scale that you might give considerations to. So for me, an A player isn't about the cash. It's about their commitment to achieving the goals and long-term vision and values of the business. An A player might be a top salesperson, which is happy to be able to still come in on a Saturday to be able to support a junior member of staff because they see that a junior member of staff's struggling. An A player isn't in it for them. They're in it for the long haul. And they understand that the importance of contributions towards a greater good, that together everyone achieves more, as opposed to in it for themselves. A B player is usually what most commercial businesses refer to as an A player because they're the ones that are in it and hard at it and and winning for themselves that happens to be able to contribute towards the business's success at the same time. And yet when we look at the second floor and understand when the environment changes, you'll find that those players fight for themselves and don't fight for the team. A C player is somebody that is usually one of the crowd, one of the crop, and we've got to be able to have a multitude of C players. Again, I'll never forget Mick Germain telling me, I I once questioned him with regards to Circe, I've noticed that Frank seems to be overseen on promotion for the last three or four years. He's he's a good private soldier, but he's, he's never been put forward for Lance Corporal. Is there a reason for that? And the RSM looked at me and he said, Alan, the army will always need private soldiers because if Frank ever gets promoted, it's the chances are that you'll be back in the field. We always need foot soldiers. And a C, a C customer or a C-grade uh, employee are the ones that are there and happy to be an employee. They're not looking for a career. They're looking to be able to take home a salary. And as long as there's stability, they'll continue to do what they do. And we all need those in a business. A they're, D- they're reliable, steady eddies. A steady eddie. A D-grade employee is the one that is a flight risk. They're the ones that are stirring up trouble. They're often the disruptors, but not disruptors in a positive way, in as much as saying, well, how do we do this better? That A D-grade is usually a bee in disguise or a wolf in sheep's clothing that is out for themselves and wants to be able to take everybody else with them. They'll flight between one or the other. They're usually the gossips in a business, and they're usually the ones that are having a bigger impact on the trajectory that the business can have by having their own agenda and trying to force it on a business interesting okay now c's can become a's but b's can become d's and that's the give that's the consideration interesting so how can one build in systems to predictively hire a players Ultimately, rather than going off CV and education and background and all that type of malarkey, and we know the traditional stuff of disc profiling and Myers-Briggs and all that type of thing, which always helps and contributes. I'm a far more uh, subscriber these days to Carl Jung and the archetypes and understanding that we need to be able to have a series of archetypes within a business that helps support the whole 
and doing an archetype study to determine as to what their character and character flaws are, as opposed to saying, well, they're a high D, so we need to have some more eyes. Okay, right. So again, a, a lot of my work is looking upstream at the things that we can prevent in order to prevent the downstream symptom. But when we do that, and this comes back to the point you were making earlier on about companies hitting that ceiling, I think one of the big problems is that they don't recruit ahead of their growth. And so then they're playing a game of catch up. And the net result of that is that they compromise on recruitment. So they end up with significantly more B players Mm -hmm. and they uh, also attract D players. Well, the trouble is with B players is the fact that they will only be in it whilst there's high growth. And we know that for a business to be able to go through the various different ceilings from one area or arena to the next, as we move up the levels of business, be that from six figure to seven figure or seven figure to eight figure or eight figure to nine figure and vice versa. We know that as we start to plateau and other things take place, like the infrastructure of the business and the the overall planning to be able to move from operating in one country to operating in Europe or globally, that in actual fact, the B players suddenly start to get bored and either become a D and start to become disruptive or simply just fly off and disappear off to your competitor that's trying to keep up with you. Okay. So if you're starting with a blank sheet of paper, you're going to start your plan. How do you build a plan that ends up where you want to be instead of taking you all the way around the houses? Great question. And it lands us to those four killer questions. I almost guarantee that of the 10 odd thousand people I've asked over the last decade these questions, I've found less than two dozen have been able to succinctly and justify the answers that they've been given. So these questions tends to be rather hypothetical right now, but by by spending the times to be able to truly think about, answer those four questions, will fundamentally change the way we think and act within a business and will subsequently lead to us being able to make those right hires. Okay, so hit me with the questions. Question number one. On what date are you going to leave the business and in what state will it be when you do so? Nice question. Second question, who is going to take over from you and what and why why would it be them? What's their aspiration? Where are they going to take it further? And that's predominantly down to back to the first question and what state is it going to be in? You've only got to look at government recently that says, you know, best of luck to you, there's no money left. What state are you going to leave it in for them to be able to pick up the reins and take it further as opposed to mop up all the shit that you've left behind you? Yeah. Question number three, how are you going to identify them? How are you going to approach them? And what mentorship are you going to provide them to enable them to become the best leader that the business has had beyond your involvement? Okay. And the final question, why should they accept the mantle that you're going to lay down for them? Elaborate on that question, clarify. Well, it's all right you identifying that I want to exit to my Bahamas island and therefore I need to find an underlings to be able to come and take on my job. All right. So what's in it for them? What's in it for them right. that you're leaving behind for them to be able to pick up and take? Have you put them on a rail, railroad trains to nowhere or are you stepping off at your station that it's subsequently going to hyperinflate beyond, you know, beyond your capability or willingness to take it there? Yeah, are you planting something today that's going to be bigger than you when you're long gone and uh, yeah. I had the pleasure and privilege of having having a private audience 
with the current CEO of the Royal Air Force recently. And one of the questions I posed to him was the RAF, at the time that we had this conversation, just before Christmas, the RAF are in good stead with all of the local press and national press, with governments both here and abroad. The RAF are doing particularly well right now. They're they're a well-liked service. So I asked him, to what do you attribute such success? And he said, if you want to understand more about the current successes the RAF are having, you should interview somebody that was my predecessor from 15 years ago. If you want to determine my success, come back and interview me 15 years before uh, after I've retired. And it's about understanding our role is, even as the CEO or the, or, or the leader of a team, our role is not to be able to deliver it for what we can get from it, but what can I do to make it a better place to be that the person who comes and replaces me takes it even further and I'm seen as the one that creates that created that environment? And uh, I couldn't agree more within sales. I fundamentally believe our responsibility to our fellow salespeople is to do an excellent job so they never have to be embarrassed to follow us. And how many of you can say that of your selling? I hope, you know, if you're listening to this, it's something that you do as a matter of course, but it does mean that you have to put your customer's interest before the pressure that you're receiving. And it is a choice. If you choose to put a customer under pressure, if you choose to lie, manipulate, uh, exaggerate, omit, you made that choice. And I believe to my core that servant leadership starts with being impeccable with your word. There's a great quote from a book called Legacy written by James Kerr. Um, all around the 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 um, the All Blacks and the, the the history of how the All Blacks became who they are today, and there's a lovely quote that says, "To this day, there has never been an All Black who has played any game, either a friendly or a cup match, where regardless of the score, an All Black hasn't been given man of the match." However. It is also known within the All Blacks that you will be fined a day's pay. And for them, it's not a great sum of money, but it's the it's the moral high ground of, uh, of having money taken from your pocket. You will be fined a day's pay if you are ever seen to be putting on a shirt without first looking at the number on your back and promising to do every predecessor good justice. <laughs> Again, the, what's interesting is... I'm seeing a generational shift where younger entrepreneurs are coming through and purpose is something that's central to their businesses. Amen. And I'm also starting to see, you know, more and more B Corps and companies mirroring it, whether they're in the uh, the scheme or not. So how do you see that shift uh, affecting the stability of businesses that do adopt that kind of approach? Great question again, Marcus. I'm going to refer to Simon Sinek, our dear friend, Dr. Sinek, who did an interview on TED probably about five or six years ago now, talking about millennials in the workforce and how we keep the old guard, keep talking about these millennials and these, they've got a different attitude to everyone and they don't do this and they don't do that. And the simple fact is, is we created them. It's it's our generation that have given them the choice and the belief and the, the, the rights to be able to ask and challenge questions that subsequently are now the leaders of today and of the future that we're now being challenged by and we don't like the questions that they're asking. 
And the simple fact is the only constant in life is change. And unless we can start to adapt and learn that in actual fact, these are the questions that we should have been asking 10 years ago, as opposed to saying, shut up and carry on, don't question me. We're going to continue to run into problems and hurdles. The simple answer is, and again, the data supports this, businesses that have representation of more than two generations are 9 to 13% more effective and more sustainable than those that only have leadership of one single generation. Say that one again, because that was really worthy. So businesses that succeed in today's environment are ones where they have leadership representation from at least two different generations. And it's proven that it's 9 to 13% more effective if you've got leadership representation from at least two, possibly even three generations that are contributing towards the overall outcome of the business. Now, this is really interesting because a lot of the work that I've been doing, I've been looking back at at, things like biomimicry and so on. And um, a pal of mine, Anthony Willoughby, is a fascinating character. He was educated at Eton, I think, and um, he describes himself as effectively useless. So he then uh, decided to go off to Japan, spent years over there, then spent the last 45 years working with the Mongols, tribes in Papua New Guinea, and the Maasai. And when he first started, he asked some people in the Maasai, who are your leaders? And they said, what do you mean, leaders? I said, well, leaders. I said, well, we've got leaders for different things. Every generation has leaders, and we have leaders for caring for the cattle. We have leaders for dealing with adverse weather, Mm -hmm. for dealing with predators, for dealing with neighboring tribes, for dealing with marriage and taboos and all this kind of stuff. The problem is that where we become siloed and where we start to think that we know the answers, we come with assumptions, and um, then we miss the advantage of diverse thought. Massively so. The, the, the biggest, the biggest realisation is that this time-served leadership of, you know, you'll, you'll become a leader if you've been in the business for eight years and haven't screwed up. Uh, you can become a manager after 12 years, but you can't get it at your 11th year because you've not done enough. All of this idea is supporting the old rhetoric of this archaic system that just no longer serves modern society. Whereas in actual fact, if you go back to the archetypes and turn around and say, so who is best suited to lead us through X? Whose skill set and characteristics are the one that's going to be the one that pulls us through Y? And then implore them and make it available and the resources to be able to enable them to be the best human being that they could be, that collectively will understand that we need to get the tribe from A to B. Who's the best at doing that in this environment? It's really interesting. One of my partners is a guy called Gary Mitchell. And for the last 30 years or so, he's been doing significant transformation projects and often recovery in PE. And he has never once failed to meet the uh, objective. And his methodology involves essentially building really simple strategy, which is what the hell are we trying to accomplish? And then what are the three to five bets that we have to place and that will get us there? And who is the person best suited to lead that, no matter if it's their first day or they've been here 37 years, and irrespective of their job title, And if we don't hit the milestones that we've set out within six months, and then chances are people will lose faith in the plan. 
Um, so we need to have clear milestones that everyone can uh, back and everyone knows their part in accomplishing. Now, that kind of rigor is something that's scary to people whose egos are more concerned with their selfish self-interest. So if you are a manager or a leader in one of these businesses where it's bound to be a mixed bag, what advice would you give so that if you play the long game and you're patient, you can start winning things, people over, and you can start to prove the thesis? There's two answers to the question. Uh, One of them would be, if you haven't already done so, read John Timpson's book, Upside Down Leadership, the story of Timpson's, the the shoe manufacturer, and understand as to how it can be operated at at such a high level that in actual fact, that the the new recruit is the one that interviews the CEO and not the other way around to be able to say, these are the things I need from the business in order to be the best, best human being you can be. And James Timpson, his son, is, is an example of how that can transcend through generations and still continues to be as effective 50, 60, 70 years later. But ultimately, I just want to quickly perhaps finish by sharing that we were all being taught this as a three and four and five-year-old child. Most nights after we finished our homework, sat down with our parents and watching five minutes of television and Tom and Jerry. <laughs> you see... Most people see a cat chasing a mouse and trying to capture him and eat him. And yet the real message behind it was Tom represents the fat cat within all of us. And Tom is adamant that he's going to catch Jerry, who is symbolising of money. And it doesn't matter how hard Tom tries and how innovative and creative and determined he is, Jerry is always one step ahead. And even when he gets caught, he manages to find his way out through the, through the paw and he's off again, Tom becoming more and more desperate, more and more challenged, more and more pressurised and usually often quite injured in the doing so. And yet at the end of each cartoon, by the time Tom has got a big lump on his head and birds spinning around and completely shattered and fed up, he gives up and sits down. And the moment he sits down, Jerry gets bored of not being chased and comes and sits with him and shares the cheese. Well, the cheese represents impact. And if we could actually spend more time understanding that if we start to chase a bigger impact, money will always come and find us. Money is a symptom. The clothes is a symptom. They're a byproduct of doing the other stuff right. Amen. On all. Uh, lying and cheating, but they're one way or the other. And there there are a couple of books I think are very pertinent to this conversation. The first one is The Fourth Turning by William Howe and Neil, William Strauss and Neil Howe. That documents the uh, cycles of boom and bust and the effect it has on generations. And it goes back on 500 year, 200 year and 80 year and 30 year cycles, um, which is very, very instructive because Children born in good times then tend to create quite weak leadership. Children born in tough times, you know, the you know, First World War, very resilient, and then created the baby boomers. Okay, now um, read that, then read the Making Sense of the uh, Changing World Order by Ray Dalio, where Ray Dalio then tracks the financial cycles that are going on, and it starts to all make sense. Then 
there is a wonderful book, which I'd strongly recommend you read, called Humanocracy by Gary Hamill and Michelle Zanini. And then to top it all off, What's Our Problem by Tim Urban. Now, Tim's done, uh, he's the guy who does Wait But Why, and he did that fantastic TED Talk on procrastination. Wonderful stickman drawings. But he's done seven years of research onto the uh, polarization of society. And it's really fascinating. So those four act as a really good primer for trying to make sense of what's coming. I've read one of the four, so I've now got three more to add to my list. Thank you, Marcus. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Now that you've got ChatGPT, you can start running their their different thesis through as well, which is a proper rabbit hole. Don't do it. Well, do it, but um, make sure that you're on holiday or something. (laughs) Excellent. Jay, this has been fascinating as usual. Um, Tell me this. The best mistake you've made in the last couple of years, what was it and what did you learn from it? And who would you like to apologise to? I think I need to apologise to... I think I need to apologise to my last two employees and perhaps about a dozen or so clients of that era. We fell into the trap Despite everything that I've just shared with you and everything that we've learnt, it's so easy to fall off course and fall back into the commercial trap of being the same as everybody else and I need to do X and and measure the external as opposed to the internal. And I determined that we were going to grow a couple of years ago, ironically, you know, literally weeks before the first lockdown at the point of recording this and took on a new member of staff and therefore uh, a new fee earner and therefore determined in order to be able to make it as profitable as possible, as quickly as possible, that we wouldn't do the same checks and balances for taking on new employ- new clients as we usually do, because I know the checks and balances that we did were suited to my personality and characteristics, and we hadn't yet done the personality profiling of the new employee. And therefore, we said, well, we'll accept some more clients and they can be looked after by him. And then once it's profitable, we'll get the opportunity to be able to do character analysis on our clients and character analysis on our. And then we can match to determine are they better suited to him or me? And in the the interim, we fell foul of becoming more commercially minded as, as opposed to internally customer people centric. And he got fed up and so did some of our clients. And 18 months later, we were back where we started from with 18 year, 18 months worth of experience and no, predominantly no further forward. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, thank you. Tell me this, how can people get hold of you? That's quite simple. I tend to hang out on LinkedIn most days these days. All you've got to do is type in my name, Jay Allen, and either look for my true north or add a zero, hashtag add a zero, Um, And both of them will point them towards myself rather than anybody else in the world. Wonderful. Jay Allen, thank you. God bless you, Marcus. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share and subscribe. Tag someone who would benefit from it and definitely get hold of Jay's books. Add a zero. And what's the second one called? Um, So add a zero, establishing base camp and add a zero scales to summit. Excellent. Okay. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, there's going to be a link in the show notes to book some time with me for coaching. If you are a principled seller who is under pressure to stretch your values in order to make quota and keep your bosses happy, give me a call because you probably didn't get into sales so that your life could be a misery. Look forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.